every time we go to God's word, we need his help or else if he's not working in our lives, his word will fall on deaf ears and and we don't want that. We don't come here to ignore the things of God, but we come here because we love God and we want to worship him. Let's go to him in prayer now, asking desperately for the help that only he can give in this moment. Pray with me, church. Father, you're the one who opens eyes and ears. You're the one who inspired the very words that we're going to look at today. You're the one who sent your son to the world to do and say the things that he did that we're gonna see today. So you're the only one, Lord. You're the only one that can apply and draw us to yourself and reveal the goodness of what you've revealed to us today. So we come to you in desperation. We ask that you would do a work that only you could do. Lord, help me to be able to present the truths of this passage as you've called me to do in a faithful way that is true to the passage, true to the text. I need your help. We all need your help. Work in us today. We say this in Jesus' name, amen. Just this past week, I was talking with someone about some really wild things that they were facing in their job. And in a fallen world, we can all come across unexpected curveballs in life all around us, whether it's in our jobs, or in our homes, or in our communities, right? We've all experienced that. Now, some of you might be tempted to think that working in a church, which is my job, would somehow alleviate and eliminate any interesting workplace scenarios and stories. You might be like, ooh, pastor, tell us about the staff Bible study you had this past week or the great time of prayer, or the fellowship meal with the other pastors together. Please, get out of here with that pastor, you might think. Give me a break. Nothing interesting would happen in a church environment. Okay, think what you want. Think what you want. But flying bat attacks through the building, or a wanderer with a hatchet walking through those doors and asking me, if I might point them to a church member for a place to stay for the night, which, of course, I did not provide to him, as you all know. Or the recently fielded calls by our secretary, Bobby, and then Pastor Wood this past week, only days later, of someone literally calling and asking if they can use metal detectors on our church property looking for valuables. Of which, of course, we said absolutely not. <laughs> and if we're going to get, and if we are right now sitting on a gold mine, either some members of ours are going to have to start a committee and do the searching and digging and then cleaning up, or it just ain't going to happen. I'm sorry, it just ain't going to happen. Because who wants all that mess and liability? Of course. You just can't make this stuff up. But you see, our passage today is all about the metal detectors of our words revealing the treasures in our hearts. Either bad treasure and wicked hearts on the one side over here, 
or good treasures and righteous hearts on the other side, over here. The passage, you see, is a line in the sand that Jesus is drawing. And as one preacher put it, you don't need a treasure map to find out what is inside people's hearts. You just need to listen to their words. So let's jump right in to the text to see this because we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So let's first see the treasure in the side of point number one, rotten blasphemy, in verses 22 through 37 of Matthew chapter 12. And would you just stand with me for the beginning of our reading of the word of God this morning. This is God's holy and inspired and perfect word that we must sit under. We must right now stand under to see what it says and to live in light of it. Matthew 12 and verse 22 says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You may be seated. Did you see the line Jesus drew in the sand right there in the passage we just read? Jesus says, whoever is not with me, what? Is against me. Jesus, you see, is not pushing for the status quo. He is expecting our whole lives and selves given to following him. And here we have another amazing miracle of King Jesus 
falling on deaf ears and blind eyes, sadly. The disabilities and oppression that these people are delivered from by Jesus, ironically, picture the spiritually true state of these hard-hearted religious Pharisees, hypocrites, opponents of Jesus, don't they? This man was demon-oppressed. These Pharisees are more demon-influenced than they think. The man was blind and mute. These religious leaders were spiritually blind, you see. And we have to remind ourselves again here not to miss the miracle in the midst of the hard-hearted response of these guys. This man was in a terrible way. And he was delivered by Jesus. It's glorious. The compassionate and powerful Savior did something amazing in his life. Can you imagine for someone who could not see or speak, go from silence and isolating timidity and lack of awareness of things and also spiritual oppression by a demon? Talk about a bruised reed and a smoldering wick that we would have seen last week, that we saw a desperate man met by the very capable, gentle, and lowly Savior who delivered him. This is amazing. But then you go from this good act of Jesus again, this great act that he did, to the haters throwing shade and trying to explain away the miracles of Jesus with the demonic of all things. This isn't the first time that this has come up as we saw this also in chapter 9, them blaming it on demons, Jesus' work. But now we're gonna see Jesus spend some more time really zeroing in on his defense to refute the Pharisees' claim here about him. They said he goes all about his life doing these miracles by the very evil demon doing his bidding within him. They're saying that about Jesus. Oh, that's terrible. Have you ever had someone explain the good things that you've done away with some unfair and untrue explanation of what's going on in your life? I think of the atheist who claims that Christians use religion as a crutch to make them feel better themselves. Not because it's true, but it just makes you feel happy. That's what they might say. And whatever someone might have said to you along these lines is probably really hurtful. I get that. But what these Pharisees said to Jesus was a million, zillion, trillion times worse. I hope you can see that too. You've heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt you, wrong, baloney. In this case, Jesus goes so far as saying that the blasphemous words here by the Pharisees not only misrepresent the work of the Holy Spirit, but will also send them straight to hell in judgment. Our words have more weight than we often think because they reveal what is really in our hearts. It reveals, as the illustration goes, the kind of fruit we produce 
what we just kind of blurt out and say, there's truth behind it because it's in our hearts and coming out. And it reveals the kind of treasure that we value. The Pharisees, you see, had rotten to the core fruit growing out of them, didn't they? Worm burrowing fruit. Gross. Maggot crawling infested fruit. That is nasty. And their blasphemy here against the Holy Spirit was literally, what, damning. And blasphemy, you see, is tied to people's words. You've certainly heard of the unforgivable or unpardonable sin before. Here it is. Maybe you've worried in your life that you've committed it. Maybe you've been anxious and had doubts about whether you're saved because maybe you've committed this unpardonable sin. But if that's you, the fact that you're concerned about it reveals what literally every commentator and every pastor would say on this passage that I read and engaged with. They all say it certainly reveals, if you're worried about it, that you've not committed this most heinous sin. But because people who have committed this sin are so far gone and undeniably conscious-stricken about the sin before God, they're hardened. They're dead set against God. And talk about degrees of judgment that we saw before in Matthew 11 again. This act of committing the unpardonable sin is literally the worst of the worst because it leaves a person without hope of salvation even in this life should they commit it. For you see, there are people on two sides of this line that Jesus draws. Either unbelievers producing bad fruit or believers producing good fruit. But on this unbeliever side, there appears to be a category of people like some of these Pharisees, not all of them, because not every scribe and Pharisee had committed this sin yet, to be sure, but some of these Pharisees would certainly be in view on this side. And it appears that in the unbelievers, there were some who had gone so far down the road of unbelief that they had the nerve to look at Jesus and his work, who Jesus being the epitome of the final revelation of God to man. I mean, you don't get any more revelation than the Son of God walking amongst them, right? And healing people in front of them, casting out demons and preaching with authority like none other. You just don't get any more revelation than that. He's the final, the pinnacle of it. And here these Pharisees, some of them, had the revelation in front of them and they had the gall, the nerve to explain them away as simply doing all this because of a demon inside of them and not the Holy Spirit. That right there, I hope you can see, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You see it right there in the context, don't you? But the passage clearly says that all other kinds of sins can be forgiven. That's all sins. You might be like, I've got a lot of sin. All other kinds of sins can be forgiven in Jesus if you just go to him and trust him. And if you're worried about the unpardonable sin, you haven't committed it, go to him and trust him. I don't care what you did. He forgives all sins. That's a lot of different types of sins. 
We can put our nose up at people for this heinous sin and that heinous sin. Because Jesus can and does and has forgiven people that fall into that category. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? There's a lot of Christians in this room with all different types of sins. This sin and that sin and this sin and the other sin. And oh, this sin over here. This secret sin here. This public sin over here. Guess what? Jesus forgave you. We know. We look around and we can see all types of sinners and sins and propensities towards evil. And guess what? Jesus forgave them and forgives them and will forgive all types of sin. But this unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is weighty. Now, Jesus was able to pinpoint and call out those who had committed it here directly. <laughs> but since, just to be clear, we don't know people's hearts like Jesus did and does, and we don't know how much revelation they have received, because that's a piece of it. Has Jesus revealed himself to them in this full manner, in this kind of a way? We don't know exactly what's going on in their hearts and what they're speaking against in their blasphemy. Remember, all different types of blasphemy. It's not blasphemy itself, speaking bad things about God. It's not like that can't be forgiven, but we're talking about somebody who has the full knowledge of, of Jesus and then attributes with that knowledge his work, not with the work of the Spirit, but with the work of the devil. So because we don't have the knowledge of Jesus in this, we can't pronounce this kind of judgment against someone. And I just think most any conceivable situations we could think of, we, we better not make that pronouncement like Jesus, but be aware of the category. Jesus can make that pronouncement, can he? Because he's Jesus. <laughs> he's fully God and fully man. He's the second person of the Trinity. And at least some of these Pharisees fell into that category. So rotten to the core. A treasure so wicked and evil that they were irredeemable at that point. And Jesus is calling it out now. Everyone who wasn't with him was against him. But some were so far against him that their eternal fate was sealed and their reprobate hearts and minds were on their way to hell even before they died. This is serious stuff. But don't miss here the point that their words mattered, didn't they? Because their words revealed their hearts, their inner person and who they really were, and their words were judged by Jesus, lumping them into the similar category as Pharaoh and his hard heart, and Judas, and others who were sealed to perdition in their wickedness as the scriptures revealed. This is a very obstinate group, okay? And most of us, thankfully, don't have to worry that we're in it, especially if we're concerned about it. But how does Jesus respond to that gossip and slander that he was somehow demon-possessed? They said Jesus was demon-possessed. What does he say? This is his defense. Look what Jesus said. He says, well, as we saw last week, he this week refutes the Pharisees on this topic like he refuted the Pharisees on the Sabbath debate before. And he shows, doesn't he, how illogical their claim was. Foolish. Makes no sense that Jesus would be indwelt by demons if he was casting out demons. <laughs> like, why would Satan want to cast out Satan that doesn't seem like a good plan Jesus is pointing to, clearly. Doesn't seem like it, does it? Satan would want to do other things, and he does. 
but certainly not to thwart his own plans that he deliberately sent out in his demon troops to accomplish. It's so backwards, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. And then Jesus even points out to their contradiction because even some of these religious leaders, and they claim to be able to cast out demons as well and to be doing that. So he's like, hello, everybody. If that's how it's done, do they have demons too, casting out demons? Their claims are not only wicked and vile, you see they're self-refuting, Jesus is saying. It doesn't make sense. It refutes itself. And Jesus simply lets them all know, including all of us here today, that with this new sheriff in town, King Jesus, he had to do these miraculous works against the prince of darkness and his demonic host. Why? To reveal his powerful authority over Satan. And all these examples of Jesus single-handedly confronting and defeating demonic activity all around, one by one, dealing, uh, healing, uh, uh, delivering oppressed people, one by one, standing up to the temptations of the devil himself, as we saw earlier in the book, reveals what? That he certainly did bind the strong man, Satan himself. Things were a-changing with Jesus, new sheriff in town. You can hear the Western music going now. Wood joked last week when I mentioned it that he should play the wow. There's a new sheriff in town in Jesus, isn't there? Things were changing with him. But then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter to the, point out the obvious. If things are not by demons, which they, it just doesn't make any sense here, guys. Look, it's just foolish to say that. And they aren't by demons. Then what's the explanation? The Pharisees couldn't explain away the, what the actual people, what was happening, the real healings and deliverance from demons. They saw it. They had to come up. They had to blame it on demons. They had to blame the delivering of demons on demons. They had to blame the, the, the healings on demons. That's where the power came, they said. They couldn't deny the power was there. They saw it. So they, they pulled the whole, the demons did it fallacy, right? But Jesus shows us where the power actually came came from instead. And it's quite important for all of us to see, so I want us to see it again in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. What does it says? It says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here's the thing. Whether you're here and you have bad fruit and you're a bad tree revealing rotten fruit, with bad treasure or not, whatever side of the line you're on, Jesus did all these miraculous deeds because the Holy Spirit of God indwelt him to do these mighty works. Don't miss it. And the kingdom had certainly come in his ministry, and the kingdom had come with great kingdom power demonstrated over and over by King Jesus. You see that? Are you gonna be like the Pharisees with hard and wicked, rotten hearts? Or do you believe the good news of the kingdom come and are you experiencing firsthand the fruit of kingdom power in your trusting of Jesus today? Where are you? Which side of the line are you on? Which type of fruit does the metal detector of your hearts reveal? What do your words point you when you say them? 
Where is it beeping, on the evil side or the good side? Is it leading you towards good and glorifying God, or is it leading you towards condemnation? Where are you at? I want us to continue to further press along to see this losing side of the line. Why? Because Jesus spends a lot of time here to point out what we've been seeing over and over again, that there are wicked hearts of those who oppose him and his ministry. It's revealed over and over again, and we're gonna see it even here in our second point in number two. We saw rotten blasphemy. Now we see an evil generation in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of, a great fish, of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but find none. Then it says, I will return to my house for which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. <laughs> Jesus just continues to rebuke not just the Pharisees, which he did, with their rotten and blasphemous words, which we just saw. But he continues his attack against the Pharisees and the rest of this adulterous generation at the time, which, of course, was the generation who was right there during Jesus' earthly ministry. Yet, even though they saw him rejecting and opposing his every move. This included the Jewish people like some of the Pharisees who rejected Jesus. But maybe weren't Pharisees themselves. And they were adulterous, an adulterous generation. Why? Because their covenant God, Yahweh, the God who rescued them out of Egypt, the God who gave them the law, was also the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ. And they rejected Christ like the people and prophets of old were rejected by many of God's people during those times. You see, they were adulterers going to different gods and different plans of salvation like the adulterous wife, Gomer, continually cheated and committed adultery against her husband, Hosea, as we see in Scripture. It's adulterous generation. But not only were the religious people in view, but also the towns that rejected Jesus that we saw before. They're implicated in this whole mess of seeing and hearing Jesus and ignoring him and rejecting him. The people all over, they revealed their wicked hearts and they were a part of this evil generation. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? Not only 
for all the people who were swept up in this wicked generation. They were on their way to hell. If they don't repent, if they didn't repent because of their rejection to Jesus, Jesus was going to once again add another argument here to reveal their shame. Did you see it? He just before compared the cities that rejected him with the most heinous cities of old. Remember Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah. He now compares them with other well-known wicked Gentile situations in the past. All of this, you see, was precipitated by the request of Jesus to perform for them a sign as if he were some personal genie that they were asking him to kind of respond on the spot. But do you all just realize how crazy this is? He just delivered and healed a blind man and a mute man right before them. Before, he healed the man with the withered hand. Or before that, the woman with the flow of blood. Or Jairus' daughter who was dead and then rose from the dead. Or the countless multitudes who came to him. So many examples of miracles and deliverance from demons. So many signs. And here they are, and they ask for another? What is going on here? It's because they're a part of this evil and wicked generation, Jesus says, that they even request another sign like that. They didn't really want signs, did they? They had their minds made up against Jesus. Even we see evidence by their request for another sign. But you see, he continued to reveal how lost this generation actually was. And he pointed to Gentile examples of the Old Testament to put them to shame. For the Jewish person, this would be so offensive. This would be so offensive. He said, no more signs for you except one last sign. What is it, guys? What is it, gals? The sign of Jonah. Now, they would all know of Jonah, right? It's in the Old Testament scriptures. And they would know about the wicked Ninevites that Jonah went to. But the sign of Jonah was tied to his three days and nights in the belly of that great Fish connected then with the Son of God and his death and then burial and then rising from the dead and the resurrection three days later. He adds insult to injury here, not only in pointing to Jonah and that sign and pointing to the resurrection, which is a clincher sign that Jesus died and then rose again from the grave is the kind of sign that back then and then today is the clincher sign. If you don't trust Jesus who rose from the dead, there's nothing else that's gonna convince you. But then he adds to the sign of Jonah, this clincher uh, argument, he adds also this Gentile pagan example of the queen of Sheba, Traveling, if you remember in your Old Testament, a far distance, why? To gain wisdom from Solomon because Solomon was the wisest man anywhere. Why? Because of Solomon's God. The true God of Israel. And what does Jesus say about Jonah and Solomon here? What does he say? Jesus says the same things he said before about the temple and about David and about the Sabbath. He says he's greater than them even. He's the greater preacher than Jonah. He's the greatest who ever lived, right? And he's wiser than the wisest man who ever lived, even wiser than King Solomon. Did you see that pointed out? And if the Gentile Ninevites who Jonah went to repented in light of Jonah's preaching 
And if the queen sought and believed Solomon's wisdom, this Gentile queen, which was God's wisdom, how wicked and lost and adulterous is this generation before him who rejected the greater temple, the greater David, the greater Sabbath, the greater Jonah, the greater Solomon, who was right in front of them demonstrating his very great power and greater works, and they rejected him. Now, now, so far in this sermon and in what we've read, you might think that Jesus is the biggest downer that there is with all this negativity, (laughs) because this is judgment, this is negative. Now, I know of some preachers who always preach only one message of positivity and self-help, sunshine and roses, but I want you to see that there's more in Scripture than that. And they didn't get their preaching style from King Jesus, did they, apparently? This is weighty, you see here. And it gets worse. He continues to go after this evil generation and gives more examples of how bad off they are. From their dishonest desire for signs and their unbelief in the face of great King Jesus, he adds this little example of an unclean spirit or demon leaving someone and then later coming with seven more demons to indwell that person, making the person worse off than before, which really was just an illustration pointing out once again that there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus, is there? You are either for or against him. And if you don't trust Jesus alone, you're just gonna go from bad to worse. Do you you see that pointing it out? from one demon to eight demons in this illustration. And Jesus likens this very bad situation once again to this evil generation going from bad to worse. Have you fully submitted yourself to King Jesus? And do you follow him as the only way, the exclusive Lord and Savior of your life? Have you? I'm not asking here if you're moral or if you've gotten your act together or maybe if you've swept the inside of your metaphorical house with respectable behavior. Jesus is interesting in a kind of armchair quarterback morality and apathetic cultural Christianity and cultural respectability only. There is no neutrality with Jesus. You're either with him or you're against him, even if you... think or seem to have it all together. I want you to see that. There's more to it. There's more to it than that. My fear for you, if you have not followed Jesus as an exclusive disciple of him, giving him your life, listening to what he says, doing what he says, seeking to live as a disciple, if you haven't done that, even if you look good on the outside, you're deceived and on your way to judgment like this evil generation, if that's you. Because though you may have a little religion and a little Bible here and there and a little church here and there, and you may pay lip service to the things of God, if you're not for him, really, you're against him. If you're not all in with the Savior, you're in danger of getting swept up in that evil generation and being amongst their number. 
Don't make the perilous and dangerous mistake of that generation in this generation today. Many are making that devastating error and sinful mistake. Because if you do, condemnation and judgment is coming to you as Jesus warned here. (laughs) But with all that being said, what hope do we have now? This has been a really weighty and, like I said, dark and negative sermon so far. Because why? Jesus led us to that. Do you see it in the pages of the Scripture? This is what the passage clearly indicates. If you just look at it for yourself, I hope you can see that you can't paste a smiley face emoji on it. No, Jesus is really serious here. This is weighty stuff. Jesus set that first two-thirds of our sermon But thankfully, Jesus also points us to the other side of that line, doesn't he? He gives us the beeps of the metal detector on the good fruit side and the good treasure side as well, which we're going to turn now in closing in point number three, fruitful family. Fruitful family. Let's see it in Matthew 12 and verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. (laughs) Now, in an already mainly negative section of Scripture, this appears here to be more negativity, doesn't it? Why is Jesus dissing or seemingly dissing his family here? Why? What's going on here? You probably read that before in the past and we're wondering, what's this about? Why would he say that? Well, Well, Jesus is preaching and teaching and engaging the crowd at this point. He's doing his work of the ministry. And then his family comes in here, kind of barge in to break in and interrupt him in the midst of his ministry. And he uses that occasion that we see like a good teacher would to teach something really, really important that he wants us all to know today and he wanted the people at the time to know as well. And remember, just based on other examples, His family was kind of on the fence with Jesus at that point in his ministry until later. They weren't all thrilled with Jesus and they had issues and struggles with what he was doing. James, for instance, doesn't believe in him until later, we find out. And his mom, Mary, of course, treasured the things that the angels told her in her heart, but there's evidence that maybe she was struggling with aspects of figuring out exactly who her her son was. Remember when Jesus was in the temple, her, her seemingly not getting the need for Jesus to be doing these things as the Messiah. They're, 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 they're learning as they go. Or even in the Gospel of Mark, we get a glimpse in this parallel section in Mark's account and insights into some potentially unbelief in his biological family. And it says in Mark that they thought he was crazy and had lost his mind. I want us to see it, maybe because of his teaching, I don't know, or engaging with the Pharisees, crowds, or his 
the strong words. I don't know, but either way, they were not fully on board with Jesus at the time. Let's see it in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Talking about the family. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, talking about Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, we all know what it is to be hangry, don't we? And if many of our meals were interrupted, maybe, even because of a long sermon, even maybe today, we could understand people getting a little testy in this situation. But, you see, his family was irritated with Jesus, saying that he was out of his mind. Now, like I said, many of them came around later. There's great evidence that Mary and James and others came around of his family. But for now, they were kind of people. They were the kind of people getting impatient and upset with Jesus and calling him crazy. You see that? But here's the thing. Jesus points in this moment to the higher priority of the family of God with those who are adopted into God's family through Christ, through faith in Christ. And all the commotion there of his biological family trying to get through to him, trying to barge in there, he decided to point out the greater family of God and those who had faith in him as exclusive disciples. Did you see that? Not their lackadaisical acquaintances or even biological relatives was, was ultimate. No, true family for Jesus was that eternal family that will spend more than merely a few decades with on this earth, but a millennia, forever, eternity. Because why? Of shared faith in Jesus. You see what Jesus was saying there. So when Jesus has called us to exclusive discipleship over even family, which he has over and over again, that's Jesus. Look, he was practicing what he preached, wasn't he? You see, it's great when our families are also believers and true disciples of Christ. That is wonderful. But not all of our families are that way, are they? So we need to get our priorities and focus straight as children of God, adopted into God's family with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. You see how worldview shaping that is. It's different. So the fruitful family here, in this point, Jesus is not pointing to earthly family, but the eternal heavenly family of the community of the gospel, blood bought believers in Jesus Christ, following Jesus and doing the will of the Father. Did you see it? Are you a part of that family? Are you? One way to prove it is to see where that metal detector beeps. And if it's beeping because of the evil fruit and the evil words and the evil treasure side of things, like the Pharisees, you're part of that evil generation. Is that where it's beeping? Or is it beeping on the other hand, good fruit, good treasure on that side of things, leading to not condemnation like the other side, but to eternal life. Where is your fruit? What are your words pointing towards? Let's go back and look quickly in closing to the passage about fruit detecting. Quickly, so that we can see this and drive this home here at the end. Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37 says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What do your words reveal, church? What do my words reveal? We all need to ask ourselves this. Jesus calls the Pharisees the brood of vipers because their wicked words and rejection of Jesus revealed who their real father was, didn't it? They said that God was their father, and they put on a nice appearance and looked religious and looked like a good tree on the outside, but I, don't be duped by someone like that. Don't be fooled by them because they had not God as their father, but they had Satan as their father. And Jesus says that they're just merely offspring or a brood of wicked, demonic vipers. Oh, those are some fighting words, but Jesus is pointing out the truth because of their wicked words. Wow. Again, we're seeing why they wanted to kill Jesus. But this contrast, this line in the sand is met now with the fruitful or good side of genuine believers who are part of the fruitful family doing things because they have the spirit of God themselves. Are you a child of God? Where are you at? Do your words reveal that you love God? Do your words reveal that you love his people? If so, then you're on the side of the fruitful family. Praise God, you're on the way to eternal life. You've got it now. Praise God if that's you. Your words prove or justify, not kind of in a Pauline sense that we saw in Galatians, not justified by how we live or act or what we say kind of in terms of our fruit. We're not justified that way, declared righteous. No, we're justified or declared righteous only by God's grace alone through faith in him. No works, no fruit, no nothing. That's justification. But our words are justified in a different sense, meaning our words prove that God has done that work of past justification in our lives today because our words then speak what is the fruit of a changed heart. Do you see that distinction? That's what's being brought out, which is why I ask you, what, what do your words reveal about what you really care about, what your real treasure is? And this is not about perfection, to clarify some of the thought bubbles maybe in your mind, but it's evidence of what is inside your heart and if God has done a good work in your heart, that means that you are his child adopted into his family and you're on the side of line with Jesus bearing good fruit and having good treasure and of course also repenting of your many sins. Not ignoring the fact that you're a sinner but having grace and salvation in the savior of sinners. But then the other side may say that they love God. As John tells us in 1 John, if we say that we love God but yet hate our brother, what? We're just liars if we do that kind of thing. Like the Pharisees, we're liars. Our fruit, whether rotten to the core like the Pharisees, based on their blasphemous words, leading to unsecure condemnation on the one hand, or righteous and true fruit like believers who Jesus had relationship with, with the spiritual mother and brother and sisters and 
fathers who believe in Christ and follow him, who are secure in the family of God. Get on the right side of the line, church. Don't spend another moment on the rotten side, for you're in danger, grave danger over there. Come to Jesus and follow him today. Go to him today, because waiting another day may be too late, for today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've revealed in your word. It's powerful, it's weighty, it's what your son Jesus pointed us to. Let it warn those of us who are cold and spiritual realities and dead and have no spiritual life. Let it encourage those of us who have spiritual life that we're a part of your family to live in light of that all the more, to live to your glory, to live to the good of other people around us, to live for the treasure that lasts. Would you just work with us and deal with us wherever we're at? You know exactly where every person in this room or watching online is at. You know, God, you know because you're God. Expose hearts and lead them to the right side of the line. We say this in Christ's name, amen.